So, I wrote you a poem to go on this journey together with. And it's just simply, uh, it's from the place I'll be working with tonight, which is this place called Equanimity. And it has a lot of different um, places in the practice and the text that um, can be can hold us in some way. So I call this even-mindedness. Returning from so many journeys, stories piled on top of stories, closing chapter after chapter, in some small cave hidden away, some text forgotten for centuries, held tightly in the silence, this river of our own mythologies. You, who have abandoned yourselves one too many times, have finally sat down, knowing nothing is forgotten in this place, knowing nothing is forgotten in this place, only amplified. This meditation hall filled to the brim. Stepping back, moving moving out of this house of dreams into your own center, holding this lacquered begging bowl, holding last year's dream out over it, knowing this simple gesture, hands open, dropping it leaf by leaf into this bottomless bowl. I was here to celebrate after all this living, bargaining, over now. A place where the hummingbirds can come to taste the sweetness of your own openness. The insecurity at last slips, slips down the green hillside into the creek, undistinguished from tears or just the toxins of growing up. Undistinguished from the tears or just the toxins of growing up. Sitting like a stone Buddha, unmoved by the longing and the dislikes. Now, no new, no need to move away from this great suffering or even to be enchanted by this great joy. One sits in even-mindedness with a boundless heart. Earth, water, fire, air. Find no footing here. One rests. The exile is over. To praise form and the formless. A word where emptiness, just the word, brings your hands together, gives way to a bow. 
in this great understanding. You know now when they use the words luminous or boundless. It is no stranger. You know you can sit in this unknowing, blessed by a taste of grace. So tonight I would like to explore with you this this truth of even-mindedness. And it's an interesting word, equanimity. Uh, in the tradition, it's found uh, in many places. And I'll just go a little bit through them because we uh, have them coming up in two of the kind of uh, directions that we have been pointing at towards awakening. And what's interesting, I think, in, in this is the equanimity seems to be the last on the list. You know, whether it's the ten paramitas, uh, which we haven't spoken about, but the whole, uh, this, uh, the ten perfections, it sits at the end. The seven factors of enlightenment sits at the end. The Brahma Vihara, it sits at the end. In the Rupa Jhanas, in the, in the um, absorptions, uh, in the kind of fourth jhana, it is the, of the physical form, it is the uh, equanimity that holds that. And also you find it in the, really this place of uh, just that little edge before liberation and in the, what they call the reverse wheel of dependent origination. It is again there. So we have this very uh, kind of rich word that uh, again comes up again and again and in the tradition as uh, something that is a culmination, uh, this even-mindedness of uh, the practice and the heart. Now for myself, just though, uh, these seven factors which we have been emphasizing and, and um, has been very important in my practice. Uh, and I've held it, and it's maybe just the way I hold it, that may be helpful to you or not how I uh, uh, work with it in my own practice. And I always kind of saw it since it's been snowing up where I live, and uh, when I go to Wyoming, there's always uh, this thing around snow plows. So uh, instead of the rafter with the uh, ridge pole, uh, I sort of see it as a snow plow. And, and, and it, uh, in a sense, is always a practice of balancing and coming to this, that they talk about it in the text, as a, a group of horses. And you don't want a horse to lead and you don't want a horse to go behind. You want them all to be uh, uh, balanced and in line. So as far as, uh, for me, this piece of holding these uh, factors, there is investigation. Investigation to me is actually look at the mind. Uh, When I uh, look at, when I see that I need the energetics of... uh, of, um, of question or how am I seeing or looking through uh, my sense doors uh, with my mind. You know, so that really has been helpful to me in the sense of this process of investigation. There's also energy, which uh, for me, and this has been about 
the body itself. And when I, there's a, uh, there was a period there, particularly when I used to teach with Jack at Yucca Valley, uh, where I didn't, I would, I didn't sleep a lot, and I would fall asleep every time he spoke. It was amazing. His voice was so calm, and uh, I would just sort of just go wonk, lean out. And I've learned how to correct that. Again, it's just learning about energy. And <laughs> it's true. Uh, learning how to correct it, though, on some level. And we each have to find our ways of finding that balance. And so that was really about learning how to regulate the body and uh, what I needed to stay awake in the energetics. And then the third, uh, which had to do with this word joy. And the thing about joy is it's a piece of the heart, you know, and that so we have actually the working of the mind, uh, we have the body, and we have the heart. And so it's really balancing these three in the energetic factors and finding a way to work with them. It's been really helpful for me. And so they talk about those as the arousing factors. And then there is the stabilizing factors. And the stabilizing factors, again, there's a calm with Trudy talked about, or tranquility it's called. And it, where, where is it? It's this sense of contact and ground that it, there's a solidness that's available. And uh, if you seem a little airy or whatever, it's really helpful to note that, okay, I can uh, bring my attention to this solidness, you know, in this body. And the same way that concentration uh, is this ability uh, to really, I see it as this uh, sort of like a, a sharpening a knife that we have to come and use our minds when our bodies are still, or sometimes it's just, and sometimes I'll just, when I know uh, there's just too much restlessness uh, in my mind, and a lot of storytelling, whatever, I'll simply count. And I know that that's the thing I need right now to actually collect myself in some way. And then we come to this factor of equanimity. And so we have uh, the body, uh, we have the mind, and then we have the heart. And a lot of times, because it's spoken about as even-mindedness, it's not considered so much a factor of the heart. But it is actually this ability uh, that helps us in some way uh, deal with life. You know, it is that that brings uh, a sense of stability and um, recognition that instead of contracting, that we actually have the capacity to widen, to open up. You know. So this practice, uh, when we find that uh, we see that there is this balancing that's possible uh, in our practice and that it takes this uh, repetition of training ourselves 
uh, to bring these all into, in a sense, a balance. Uh, that um, we can begin to discover uh, how this works on some level. And so I thought at this point, I just want to start with a story here, and this really has to do with my uh, daughter who um, came, well, I was the easy parent and there was a difficult parent. I think you know a little bit about this, you know. So when she was 12, she moved in with me, you know, which... Uh, I'm not sure it was the greatest thing to ever happen. But uh, for the next four years, we uh, did this dance, you know, of me traveling. And, oh, it was really exciting, you know. But one of the things that for me was this fact that the equanimity practice uh, was based on this fact that no matter what I, w- that what I wish for your happiness, I cannot make your choices for you. You know, and it was, so it became this piece of I had to keep to keep myself without losing my uh, cool. Uh, I would do these phrases, and it became such an important practice because a lot of times I could not handle it. You know, there was just that sense of of uh, powerlessness, and uh, you know, uh, people say that she's very much like me. So that was really <laughs> a little bit of a problem there. You know, uh, not comparing histories, but, uh, you know, it definitely was uh, a great challenge. And I began to see that what I needed was uh, this capacity to keep the steadiness, you know, to be really to be a rock, you know. And that rock also, um, it it couldn't be in any way uh, pulled back. You know, it had to engage. And that engagement was also a part of this equanimity practice. It wasn't something that I could just pull back and stay, well, you know, uh, everything is everything. And uh, in a sense, is kind of a, a, what, a dissociation that can happen there. But the equanimity is actually asking us to engage. And this engagement has to come from this practice that we have somehow... Um, Uh, dug through uh, ourselves in some way. And not that, you know, I sort of always saw myself as one of those, uh, you know, those um, there's kind of these blow-up dolls and they have weights on the bottom of it. And it would just, it seems like we always would go through this thing of get knocked this way and then I'd have to wait for a while. I had to shut up a lot and just, you know, wait until I could actually... um, kind of bring that both pieces there's this piece of equanimity which is really that even mindedness that we're very much training in here but also there has to be a heart in that you know it's interesting to me in in some of the tibetan training i had uh, they would start with the brahma viharas they would start with equanimity you know so you could get that so you could actually in a sense enter the craziness uh, of the world that we inhabit in some ways. You know, they talk about it as these eight worldly winds that we have to, in a sense, if we're going to live in the world, uh, which we all do here, uh, and we choose to be in it, you know, we have to come up against this thing of 
praise and blame, what they call the eight worldly winds. And success and failure and uh, pleasure and pain and vain and... Uh, what's it? Disrepute or loss, you know. Uh, we have to somehow come up against these worldly winds that uh, are uh, essentially there to teach us about this on some level, you know. So I'll tell another story here that, um, that was a great teacher for me. And uh, my mother was killed in a car accident in Switzerland. And, 1967, and uh, which in many ways was, uh, you know, was a very tragic thing and was uh, very difficult. But there was also, like all things, that had two sides of it. And she had died and, and um, uh, left uh, money for her children, and uh, it was in Switzerland. And, and, um, and I took off for uh, Asia, you know. And uh, the money was held by my aunt, and it didn't go through probate. It went just directly from the accounts there uh, to my aunt. And um, so it was seven years before I uh, had came back to the States, and, and um, I, I remember I, I went up with uh, my wife at the time, and, and we went up to Oregon to the um, Columbia Gorge, and I found this apple orchard up there with this beautiful house. And, you know, I had Mount Hood I could ski on. It was just perfect, you know. And I started this process of saying, well, where's the money? You know, show me the money, <laughs> you know. And uh, as I began that, I began to realize I began first this thing of denial, you know. I, I, I couldn't really understand maybe what had happened. And then when I started to dig in and more, I realized, you know, they had... Uh, they had oh new cars and big house and she had a, this nice business all this stuff, but they had gone bankrupt, and so they had taken all the money, you know, and it had been used in whatever investments to whatever it didn't matter, you know, but I had to go through this whole process for a year, you know, because I'd been in, in what was so great about this was in India, I thought I was cool, you know, it didn't I I could stay and I oh I can come back and everything will be okay. You know, so in a sense, it was this fantasy, you know, but I came back and then I had to go through this process, you know, and the first was, in a sense, there was this denial and then there was this kind of, no, it wouldn't be like that. No, all, you know, a bargaining process. And then when I realized the reality of it, it was, you know, I went into really depression and, uh, and, uh, then, then anger and tried to, you know, figure out some way to regain some of it or whatever. And it took almost a year, you know, and the piece around it was that through this process, I began to see how, of course, about attachment and beliefs and, and um, uh, what, um, would have been a great thing because I think I would have come back sooner. So it actually gave me this, the feeling of security, but I think everything's like that. You know, we have this feeling that somehow we're secure. And uh, in reality, I wasn't. So there was this uh, great thing of having it and then losing it. 
and how it's such a great teacher, you know. Um, and particularly, it was just money, you know. Uh, and so it it gave me uh, this sense of, oh, I see how this works on some level. And I remember years ago, I was really angry at my aunt, and, you know, I had this whole thing of, uh, I don't know if you know the story of Milarepa, but, you know, his, his, his aunt had, had uh, taken their lands and uh, uh, the family, and uh, they had gone through the same kind of pain and stuff of... Um, you know, there's a sense of, uh, you know, kind of the family and the, some kind of righteousness there that you hold. And, um, and he really took that uh, as, a, um, uh, as his pain. He took and he transformed it. And uh, this last, I was in Asia these for six months. I've been back for a few months and up in Ladakh uh, in the evenings, I would read one of the 100,000 songs of Milarepa, you know. And he was so, uh, his, he would sing his Dharma talks. I guess not going to happen here tonight, but anyway, <laughs> he would sing his Dharma talks and they were so based on the fact that his suffering, he had transformed into uh, a direction and a freedom uh, that was, you know, uh, incalculable. You know, it was from uh, a really a, in a sense, he was a very dark kind of black magician from the pain he went through. And then he was able to take that and transform it and become a fully liberated being uh, in this lifetime, uh, having done some um, terrible things. There's the serenity prayer, which I think is uh, such a a great piece that goes with equanimity in the sense, you know, it says, to accept the things we cannot change, to change the things we can, and the wisdom to know the difference. You know, this is really uh, our practice here in so many ways. I think sometimes when I find that there is a, a sort of a mix here that has to happen. And this mix is somewhere between uh, this mind training, uh, which gives us this ability first to sort of untangle the tangles. And a lot of the old stories and the chapters and all kinds of little things you have hidden sometimes in your uh, um, in your self, your psyche. Uh, and we have this opportunity to kind of bring them up and be able to uh, have two things. One is this capacity to, through the stillness, to see it somewhat clearly. You know, and what's beautiful about that clarity uh, is that there is uh, a possibility of um, 
of kind of a dryness of it, of just seeing it uh, for the truth. But there's also the wet side of this, and I don't know if that's the right language. <laughs> but it is, you have to, it's bringing that peace about the heart uh, in with the mind, in the sense that it's not a separate thing. You know, it is actually a combination uh, that uh, has that clarity and at the same time this uh, uh, beauty of, of, it's really a fearlessness of openness, you know, uh, that goes with that uh, steadiness of, uh, of mind. So, taking it in these uh, the four Brahma Viharas, you know, we have the kind of the difficult emotions that we have to untangle here. I always just call them they are the the heavy emotions uh, that, in a sense, we have to learn to uh, somewhat disentangle. Uh, let them learn to be somewhat transparent so that we can recognize them and let them move through, you know, with uh, sometimes in stormy ways. Uh, but the practice is that there's capacity to let them move through, you know, and it is really the kind of the purification that happens here uh, as part of the mind-heart. There are these four pillars of um, really the higher emotions, which we designate as uh, metta, and just to, you know, um, metta very simply. It's not an emotion, it's a state of being that uh, can hold uh, all things, you know. And so uh, it is a, a training that, in a sense, uh, gives us uh, a capacity to open. But at the same time, there's always the possibility uh, that uh, we identify with that kind of opening and, be, and that, that we recognize that also there can be uh, the emotion of attachment in it. And so it's, it's, it's no longer metta, even though it may seem to or appear to be that. And that's where uh, this equanimity, this even-mindedness, you know, that it lends uh, to metta uh, the capacity uh, to actually open uh, to a larger sphere of it. Uh, it gives it that strength uh, that's uh, only... Uh, available uh, when there is this uh, sense steadiness of heart, you know. This is from uh, Nyanipurnika Thera. Love, metta, imparts to equanimity its selflessness, its boundless nature, and its even fervor. For fervor, Two, transformed and controlled, is part of a perfect equanimity, strengthening its power to keep penetrating and to use wise restraint. 
Compassion guards equanimity from falling into the cold indifference and keeps it from indolent or selfish isolation. Until equanimity has reached perfection, compassion urges it to enter again and again the battle of the world in order to be able to stand the test by hardening and strengthening itself. Sympathetic joy gives to equanimity. The mild serenity, that softness, its stern appearance, it is the divine smile on the face of the enlightened one. A smile that persists in spite of its deep knowledge of the world's suffering. A smile that gives solace and hope fearlessness and confidence. Wide open are the doors to deliverance. When I I try to investigate this word equanimity, I go back to this as a short piece by Ram Das that um, gives sort of the complexity of uh, what happens with it. The hardest state to be in is one in which you keep your heart open to the suffering that exists around you and simultaneously keep your discriminating wisdom. It is far easier to do one or the other to keep your heart open and get lost in pity, empathy, suffering, righteous indignation, etc., or remain remotely detached as a witness to it all. Once you understand that true compassion is the blending of the open heart and the quiet mind, it is still difficult to find the balance. Most often we start out doing these things sequentially, We open our hearts and get lost in the melodrama. Then we meditate and regain our quiet center by pulling back uh, in from so much openness. Then we again open and get sucked back into the dance. So it goes cycle after cycle. It takes a good while to get the balance. At first, the discriminative awareness part of the cycle makes you feel rather like a cold fish. You feel as if you have lost your tenderness and caring. Yet each time you open again to the tender emotions, you get lost in the drama and see your predicament. If you really want to help others who are suffering, you just have to develop the balance between heart and mind, such that you remain soft and flowing, yet simultaneously clear and spacious. To stay right on the edge of that balance, it seems impossible. But you do it. At first, when you achieve this balance, it is a self-consciously maintained. Ultimately, however, you merely become a statement of the amalgam of the open heart and quiet mind. Then there is no more struggle. It is just the way you are.
So sitting like a stone Buddha, unmoved by the longings and the dislikes. No need to move away from the great suffering or even to be enchanted by the great joy. One sits in even-mindedness with a boundless heart, earth, water, fire, air. Find no footing here. One, one rests. The exile is over. To praise form and the formless, a world where emptiness, just the word, brings your hands together, gives way to a bow in the great understanding. Yutang was Secretary General of the United Nations from 1961 to 1971. He was a great and spiritual man. Dog Hammarskjöld had just been killed. There was a possibility of nuclear conflagrations over the the Surgat War of being fought in the Congo, in which the West and the East were actually at war. Utant was locked at a last-ditch meeting to avert disaster when he was handed a piece of paper, which he read. And he stayed in that meeting until the parties had reached a truce. Someone then asked him, what was on that slip of paper? He said, my son was just killed in a car accident. So this is that peace, you know, that we in some way have to hold um, and learn and, and teach ourselves over and over again, you know, of how um, we can use this capacity to kind of untangle ourselves and then find this steadiness, this stableness, you know. And then that stableness really has to do with uh, our capacity to kind of hold, in essence, kind of hold our ground, which I think is imperative uh, in the sense of, um, of the earth itself and these elements uh, are uh, a testament. Uh, a testament. You sit here uh, in that chair or on your bench or pillow and uh, you are simply uh, connected. You are being held uh, by uh, these elements, this earth. And that in some way, the, when the mind, in essence, kind of surrenders to all of its stories and It's being pushed or driven by uh, sometimes the complexity of our um, difficult emotions. That we can actually find this place, if we find that ease in this place of uh, 
sitting. Uh, that's not dependent on um, you know, our story or our past, but simply uh, this capacity to, to own uh, completely, you know, You who have abandoned yourself one too many times, having finally sat down, knowing nothing is forgotten in this place. Nothing is forgotten in this place, only amplified. The meditation hall is filled to the brim. So we're not in essence, kind of throwing our past away. Uh, we actually, uh, in this practice of equanimity, there are two things that we have to begin to uh, honor in some ways. And one of them is that uh, there is this word, uh, karma. And when uh, we talk about this word, uh, I, I like to actually separate uh, the word out. There's a word vipaka and there's a word karma. And traditionally, the word karma just simply means action. And uh, vipaka uh, is sometimes uh, just talked about as seeds um, or results. And that, in essence, we are uh, this collection of results of uh, past uh, conditioning uh, that has arrived here. And that uh, the the practice, first of all, is in essence kind of honoring that uh, the piece that Trudy was talking about last night in the sense that there is the personal and the universal. And the first piece of this is that we have to uh, recognize that um, it's not by accident that you're even here. You know, there has been a series of decisions that bring you to this moment. Uh, and they are based certainly on, um, you know, uh, physical conditions of uh, genetic uh, reality of um, of our, in a sense, kind of our individual mind stream, you know. And, um, our thoughts, you know, how we think, you know. And our practice here is kind of waking up to all of this in some way and recognizing the truth of that and that we actually, in the word karma, is that we're always, uh, in a sense, influencing uh, where we're going, you know. Uh, it's it's a little tough the vipaka because it means that even in the sometimes when we are the we do something that we feel is really straight and honest and we get back uh, anger and jealousy and uh, things that we didn't expect. There's reasons for all. That. It's all kind of this mix that's happening, and that so we have to learn in some sense that this is just. Uh, the truth of this con- these causes and conditions uh, coming to fruition, you know, 
And then there is this point, this infinitesimal point, where uh, when the mind uh, is settled and clear, and the heart is not uh, kind of pulling back or moving to the side, but actually is straight with uh, what it knows, uh, then there's this capacity to actually bring in, uh, we could say, just this uh, wisdom factor. And that wisdom factor then uh, is that that uh, with uh, the proper conditions in the sense of uh, really uh, that steadiness or stillness of mind and that fearlessness of heart. We're talking about um, uh, a world that is is totally contracting and uh, supporting. So there's this piece around the kind of the truth of that. And there's also this construction going on. And that construction is about who I think I am. You know this one? I think you've been kind of messing with it for a while. You know? And we tell these stories and we have, you know, all our likes and dislikes and they're all very personal. You know? But our practice here, Suzuki Roshi called big mind. I love that, just the language, you know, in the sense of, of that we can take that and, and we can open it, expand it. And it's interesting because in some ways that contraction, uh, which is some, you could say, is a, just the way we self, we kind of make ourselves up, is a natural instinct, you know? And here we're actually learning something that's in almost counterintuitive. It's actually taking it and saying, you know, instead of contracting around that selfing and this uh, kind of need to control or own, uh, is that I can actually soften. Uh, I can actually use my mind to open my heart, to widen. I was here to celebrate. After all this living, bargaining over. The bargaining's over. To taste the sweetness. Ah, I'm like A place where the hummingbirds come. And the other day when it was raining really hard, I was right down by the, there's some little red flowers, I don't know what they are down there. And there was this little hummingbird and the rain was pouring on him, so there was really no um, awareness of me at all there, you know. And the, here is this little bird that, what, their hearts beat 1,200 times a minute, and some of them lived to be like 11 or 12 years old. You know, it's wow, it's incredible, you know. Uh, and sitting there and just, you know, they actually, just to be able to... The, hold themselves completely still against gravity in, in the air like that to be able to do that. Just fascinating, you know. A place where the hummingbirds come to taste the sweetness of our own openness. To taste the sweetness of our own openness.
It's so easy to create struggle. No. And there's this little statement where, would you rather be right than free? You know? It's a great line. You know, would you rather be right than free? And so there has to be this choosing that goes on here that says, I'm going to start choosing freedom. You know? And um, the freedom is not a contracted thing. It's actually this ability to... um, The contraction minimizes and makes things kind of contracted and hard. And the practice itself, uh, as we, it's like in some ways going through this tunnel and, and that we come out this other end and suddenly there is, you know, what do you know about what's behind you? you know, what's that? What's that kind of awareness? You know. Uh, what about... Uh, if this body is experienceable, uh, what is it in? You know, what does it sit in? You know, this room is so huge. You know, the ceiling here, and um, there's these people in it, and our minds have this tendency to always go to the object, not what the object, what the objects sit in. And so in a way, when going through this tunnel, as we come out this other side, and suddenly it's no longer based on uh, getting lost in the objects, but there is this tremendous space that all this occurs in. And so when there's that sense of, oh, uh, I'm not going to contract down, but I'm actually going to open. And so there's an opening uh, of the mind in the sense that it takes in more not only does it take in more, then the heart can't be restricted because it doesn't hold one person or one object anymore. It holds all things. And so the practice here is as we understand the karmic results and then we begin to understand how the self, the selfing works and we begin this process of uh, seeing that there is a uh, process that kind of contracts us and, and holds us in kind of our own prison, or there's this other possibility. You know, and that we can begin to choose. You know, uh, uh, It's actually another way of thinking, another way of holding things. You know. One rests. The exile is over. To praise form and the formless. You could say the, as Trudy said last night, the self and the universal. You know, it's this dualism there that uh, there is that that it happens in and there is the specifics. And we're going to be dancing with this in the sense of moments where there's contraction and then we, through our own practices in this place of even-mindedness, instead of contracting, we simply open up again. You know, and we begin to train 
this whole process of it's kind of this counterintuitive of, of you know it's really thinning out the self. A world where emptiness, just the word, brings your hands together, gives way to a bow in this great understanding. In so many ways I see this as that self is, uh, we made it up and we were so good about making it up and I'm so glad you all did that, you know? That's really the, that there has to be a sort of a strong self to get rid of the self. But then there's this deconstruction process that we're in here. We're actually kind of pulling the little pieces out, you know? And we're kind of seeing these chapters of stories and things, and they're kind of going, oh, that was important, or I, for, I forgot all about that. When that was in the closet, I stuffed it under all these pillows, and I couldn't find it. And, and then I came and sat here, and shoot, you know? It had this big, long story, you know. But I looked at it, you know. And I asked myself, do I want to be smaller and kind of do this? Or you can do this, but you will suffer, you know. Or you can, in a sense, know it for what it is, you know. There's kind of this transparency of our feelings and our beingness uh, that lets it all go, you know. And we kind of deconstruct that self and we certainly begin to deconstruct the world as well. Before there was this self and this isolation and this separateness. But ultimately taking it apart. Is there something there, ultimately? Or is this it? No. So in a way, past and future is just, it's empty phenomena, you know? Uh, Certainly has its, you know, it has the wave of its kind of karmic piece pushing it. But right here, This is all, you know. And when we say this is all, then the isolation or the separateness or this made-up self, you know, when it's been thinned out, then it's not me and you, it's just us. You know, just, it's all connected. There couldn't be anything else, you know. But we're not afraid. We have that mind that has to stay balanced and even. And we have this heart that, instead of contracting, it goes the other way. It opens, keeps training itself to open. So I'm just going to read my poem again here just to complete the uncompletable. even-mindedness. Returning from so many journeys, stories, 
piled on top of stories. Closing chapter after chapter. In some small cave, hidden away, some text, forgotten for centuries, held tightly in the silence. This river of our own mythology. You, who have abandoned yourself one too many times, have finally sat down, knowing nothing is forgotten in this place. Nothing is forgotten in this place, only amplified. This meditation hall filled to the brim. Stepping back, moving out of this house of dreams into your own center, holding this lacquered begging bowl, holding last year's dreams over it, knowing this simple gesture, hands open, dropping it leaf by leaf into this bottomless bowl. I was here to celebrate. After all this living, bargaining over. A place where the hummingbirds come to taste the sweetness, to taste the sweetness of your own openness. The insecurity slips at last. The rains washing it down the green hillside into the creek, undistinguished from tears or just the toxins of growing up. Sitting like a stone Buddha, unmoved by the longings and the dislikes. Now, no need to move away from the great suffering or even to be enchanted by the great joy. One sits in even-mindedness with a boundless heart, earth, water, fire, air, find no footing here. One rests. The exile is over. To praise, form in the formless, a world where emptiness, just the word, brings your hands together, gives way to a bow in the great understanding. You know now when they use the words luminous or boundless. It is no stranger. You know you can sit in this unknowing, blessed by a taste of grace. Let's just sit for a moment.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.